0: And welcome to episode one hundred and eighty-one of the Great and Crowbar. My name is Chris Thurston, and tonight I am joined by Tom Senior, hello, and Philip War. hello. News today is the same as last week's news because we're saying it again. We are doing a live podcast next week at Resd Tobacco Dock in London. That's uh, Eurogamer's kind of big PC indie computer games show. We are taking over one of the stages at 4.30pm on the Friday, the 31st of March, for the first ever live recording of The Crate and Crowbar. And I don't know if I said on a previous episode that it was going to be live-streamed. I think I might have said that, but I was wrong. It's not going to be live-streamed. It will be filmed, so we are going to have a proper video version of it, which will be a nice treat. And it will go up the following week as, as the pod, the pod regular. But yes, if I previously said that you could watch it live if you weren't there, I which I may I have might done. might have said that. Or if Pip said that. Pip's very yeah. sorry.
1: Oh, I am very sorry. You're not, though, are you? Well, I mean, I am in general, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so we might as well apply some of it
2: to this.
0: <laughs> Generally sorry. Mm. Other things you can um, expect at uh, Resd to include, I think it's a talk from Ken Levine and...
1: I think he's the keynote speaker, the keynote. and we also have uh, a couple of paradox talks uh, for the RPS side of things, and nights and bikes. That's me on stage on the th- Tuesday, a uh, Tuesday, the Thursday. Hmm. Um, William Pugh's doing a thing. I think the divinity. Two people are there. Uh, there's the left field collection. There's the RPS res room.
0: There's the RPS social as well, I believe, which
1: is on the Friday. Indeed,
0: after our after our panel pod
1: mm, experience, and alongside the games industry biz quiz,
0: biz quiz, um, games industry i quiz. <laughs> a, a prey two man will be there to talk about prey two. That's exciting. Mm, so um, basically, lots of cool I, things. Yeah, because I essentially just want to live in Arcane's bins. <laughs> start a new life there
2: so mm. i'll be following
0: him around um yeah no it sounds good i'm I'm, I'm excited about it. it should be fun um if i think so as i believe i said last week but i'll reiterate attendance to the talk and the, the pod and stuff is free provided you have a ticket to the event itself yeah um, so
1: it's not an extra cost but it's not it an extra cost part of the event which also you need to ticket for
0: i now know that we are doing this somewhere in proximity to a bar which answers one of the Ooh. other questions that we've had however we will be nothing if not immaculately professional pip Mm. just made gave me a look (laughs) i don't think it was a believing look so much as a non-believing look but nonetheless so that's our um our pod business for the week we'll stop banging on about this next week when it will be too late to bang on about it because it'll be happening
1: well we'll talk about it there
0: well yes but we will have one podcast between now and then
1: interesting because of how time yes works. fine
0: but that one will go up on the day that the live podcast is also happening <sighs> sign at time fine fine a sigh of the times you might say
1: it will be nice to see you if you are going to be there
0: indeed Graham's Great. going to be there as well isn't yeah it? graham's gonna be there So oh, really. specify as well it's your chance to see oh
1: yeah I'd forgotten about him.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we all
1: had. <laughs>
0: Memorable old Graham, we call him. Um, yes, Graham will be there. So it'll be Pip, Graham and I, and surprise guests.
1: Very surprised guests.
0: Surprised guests. <laughs>
1: so, at, yeah, come At James. the Crate and
0: Crowbar Live. Come see us. First few rows might get drunk.
1: <laughs> Why?
0: <laughs> I was thinking of it like SeaWorld. Oh, okay. Like Graham leaping gracefully out of the tank we'll have him in the
1: tank of what whiskey
0: don't know <laughs>
1: doing a little fine flip.
0: <laughs> fine local ales landing belly splash mm. he's a graceful creature i don't know what i'm talking about no no me neither
1: shall we uh, move on yes mm.
0: so i mean the you know the the big the big chat this week the biggest of, of the game chats this week is surrounded the launch of mass effect andromeda uh pip how many opinions do you have about my effect andromeda on a scale of one to pulling a face
1: oh i pulled a face didn't you did I? yeah sorry yeah um what do you mean which feelings uh, any of them really i resolutely don't want to offer a hot take but okay. i could be tempted
0: um so yeah it's been it like we talked about it last week um i figured I would never normally open the pub with the game that I've been playing. Mm. But I figure it might be worth getting through Mass Effect. It's a big one. It's, it's a big, big one. one. Just on, the, not because it's it's worth, you know, skipping over so much <laughs> as, um, it's so much the kind of the dominant force in any discussion about games this week that it's sort of be nice to move on to. Yeah, Bioware
3: always manage to do this, don't they? Yeah. They always, no matter what you, one way or the other, what you think of their
0: games, they always create a lot of discussion it's never not news regardless of how their games are doing and 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 so um it's been a yeah so it's been an interesting week and it's been interesting to see the reception come out so uh the stuff that i was saying on the pod last week when i was operating under that quite silly embargo that prevented me from talking about anything after the first 10 hours of the game that really are not even the bloody tutorial like Hmm. it's a big game and takes a while to get where it's going um the things that i would say to amend to my own experience is that like there was a point where despite the, some of that game's technical problems, despite some of its animation problems, despite the odd clunky line of dialogue, um, there was a point where I was realized that I was enjoying myself, which is a stupid thing to have to say. But there was a point where I didn't was like, I'm having a good time. Hmm. And I'd almost been primed to not have a good time by both a bad start to the game itself, I think, or well, not a bad start, but like a wobbly and uncertain kind of beginning to the single player in some ways, but also by the, the negativity that, uh, the game received, um, that I second guessed myself quite extensively before I realized I like this. <laughs> um, <coughs> and so, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me to so talk briefly about kind of why that is. Um, I, you know, I think the I thing that she says, that one is that even as much as I love those original games, I have always seen a new Mass Effect game as the result of compromise and I've seen them all as little perfect. Like I remember the experience of being so profoundly disappointed by Mass Effect 2 when it came out. And I know I'm weird in that I put Mass Effect 2 at the bottom of the list of the original three, but I had that experience of like, this is not what I was expecting from a sequel to this game that I loved. And there's always going to be, there's always been shades of that with every new Mass Effect game where you love them so much that Mm -hmm. whenever they change anything, even though each of them has been different to the last, there's that kind of anxiety of like, am I going to like this? And then for me, every time there's a point where I'm like, just kind of, into it and i've got used to the things that are different and i started to appreciate the things that are good and i've gotten into the new characters and things like that and then it becomes this even that's you know a story-led led game it becomes more like a big place to hang out like i have my little rituals of wandering the bridge of previously the normandy now the tempest talking to people encountering all the incidental conversations stopping and listening to things tinkering with my gear planning what my next mission's going to be and so taking my time with it and as soon as I hit that point with Andromeda, I realized that it was a Mass Effect game and it was doing things that I really admired and I was having a really good time with it. Hmm. Even though it has, I think, unavoidable issues, um, I was almost surprised to discover the kind of exciting, pulpy space adventure that lurks past that. in Maybe the initial shock of that face animation was a bit dodgy or the initial shock of you want me to drive a car around a big open world? Even though that was a Mass Effect 1 thing. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's... Um, genuinely, genuinely like it. I'm happily playing it even now that all of my writing is done. And that's, yeah. you know... It's interesting like, I played the first
3: couple of hours today. And my expectations had been set so, so low. Like, just chattered completely like by the, the torrent of just people dumping on this game. That I ended up really enjoying it. And being like, what <laughs> um, was everyone really this angry about the yeah. start of this game? Like it, it, it's yeah, it's got some duff lines and some of the facial animations are bad. Like every game ever. I mean, the, the duff lines are are really bad, but at the same time, the the vibe of that thing is in place from the very start. The kind of feeling of going to a new place. The the music's excellent. i really enjoying the, the music. music. Is amazing. The the, the vibe of the the kind of. Um, there's something a lot more optimistic and kind of, uh, happy-go-lucky about the premise, about the that yeah. we've got this kind of youthful crew. And I was say before the podcast, like the companions remind me more of Doctor Who companions than, uh, than Star Trek companions. Yeah. Because they are kind of kids who have been put into this mission and who basically, they only knew Earth really and uh, some space stuff and they've been suddenly propelled into this crazy world, basically a fantasy world where, mm. you know, shit's floating in midair and rocks are floating dark energy which is you know some of the worst lines that you hear yeah. about that um uh, but I, I was i kind of i got the vibe for it almost immediately and i think um your dad is like really well voice acted and really, yeah, yeah really well animated and he's a really good
0: do you have a custom rider um
3: yes slightly customized did it
0: not did too it much. did it give you a custom dad a surprise dad
3: oh i'm not sure it's hard to say because uh, it
0: adjusts the um it adjusts the ethnicity of the rider parents Ah, based on how you set up the rider siblings i
3: had i had um he was craggy as fuck and really good really authoritative voice for him like yeah he's great um so i I mean that was immediately a presence that grabbed me and made me kind of think oh i want to do what this guy says basically and yeah yeah uh, and so so i i I kind of uh, i think so much this has been kind of mishandled embargoes and kind of media an attempt at media manipulation that has massively backfired on EA's part mm. that I mean what what the fuck do you review the first five minutes of a film and just only let people talk yeah. about the first five minutes of a film for a week or the first three chapters of a book it's just mad yeah it's I not think the, the, the
0: example I would use is it's the first half of the pilot episode of a TV show because mm. I think I think TV makes for a better comparison with Mass Effect than, yeah. than film often does because mm. that's the length of time you're talking about yeah sure
3: so I mean I was really pleasantly surprised, but that was after having been brought. So my expectations just tanked by uh, just endless gifts of you know dodgy animations and yeah. nothing survives that. No, like you could take the best game in the world and you could pick out just dodgy animations and cut them all together into a super cut. And say, oh, this is a piece of shit, isn't it? And it's just not representative. It's just not well, what it's I, like to play.
0: I think, crucially, the first Mass Effect wouldn't have survived that. Right. Arguably, maybe neither would some of the latter ones. Like, I mean, 2 and 3 both have the benefit of having... Well, the two things really help 2 and 3 have these kind of uh, very pacey, exciting introductions that, um, you know, people remember very fondly and maybe associate that with how a mass effect game should start hmm. and two things help them with that one is that they are well I, well the biggest thing is that they are continuing a story that you've been impatient to get back to so mass effect 2 you know you were excited to see Shepard again and then you're shocked when Things go very badly, very quickly. Yeah. And, you know, it's such a bold opening that, you know, even though it's, I think, also quite a heavy-handed way of resetting the game, mm. you know, it is as heavy-handed as it's Samus so, losing her powers again. So memorable, though. I mean, I
3: remember every moment of that, that the start of Mass Effect, to the very start of it, where, yeah. you know, that's incredible opening.
0: And Mass Effect 3 has the... It finally delivers on the threat that they've been setting up for two games. Mm. So the moment at the beginning of Mass Effect 3, where all the the signals go wrong in that Alliance space station and the reapers arrive is them pulling the trigger on like a Chekhov's gun that they've been waving at you for, for ages so you're you're in you know you're on board straight away and both times you're kind of back with Shepard as well and that's a big deal and the opening to both of those games involves a certain amount of like reconnecting with old characters or having those kinds of spectacular reunions yeah. so um with uh, Mass Effect 2 that's encountering Tali very early and then with Mass Effect 3 that's encountering Liara very early as well and having sort of like, oh, the gang's getting back together and both of them then follow this kind of marching, like we're going to get back these characters that you've had multiple games to really care about. Um, Andromeda has none of that and neither did the first Mass Effect game either, which also had an introduction with really problematic pacing issues where it would kind of open and show you something. Um, and then just put you on a space station and let you <laughs> walk around talking to people forever. Like we talked about last week. Yeah. So I think, I think maybe, you know, I wouldn't maybe argue with the fact that maybe after all this time, they could have not done that again, mm. but I do wonder to some extent to what, to, to what, extent the reaction, the, the backlash was due to people only having fond memories of the previous series, but based on certain things that Andromeda just couldn't have. Like even now there are little winking nods to the original series in, in Andromeda. Mm. Um, it's it's enormously respectful of the plot and the fact that it can't just march all over the plot of Theories of Mass Effect games. But when it does give you those little nods, there is that kind of thrill of just remembering how amazing that final cathartic kind of game was with those characters. But at the same time, I have no idea how you do that again without another trilogy to end or to wrap up in the same way. You know? Yeah. And that's, um, and I think that ties into what you're saying about the companions because it expands in that way as well. Like, uh, like Mass Effect. One thing I, you know, that I really love about it, and that um, I, re- oh, I genuinely do admire about it, is um, it answers what was always my problem with Mass Effect Two, which is that Mass Effect Two has gives you loads of companions, and makes a game about the companions, and they are all they're all great characters, but they are all almost too great. Okay. Like everyone is is the greatest assassin, the the deadliest person, the person wearing the least clothes in the galaxy. Like, it's, um, you know, Mass Effect 1 gave you this crew of kind of like, it threw together this crew of kind of people in dorky armor that didn't necessarily have a special reason to be there. It was just who happened to be around and ended up swept up in this kind of, you know, vastly important mission. Mm. Mass Effect 2 then explicitly sent you after the coolest most exciting most vital people in the galaxy who each represented some archetypal element of their culture pretty much with the exception of the ones that are coming back and the ones that're coming back were made to fill that role so tali suddenly becomes like the savior of all quarians and i guess garrus just becomes like you but you also period. your best mate yeah. and um and so on but you know like you know grunt like the pu- the the perfect krogan you know like um Samara, this, you know, a kind of crazy Asari car with a plunging neckline, like, you know, Jack, the you know, the punk rock biotic. and and I found that slightly unbelievable even as I love those characters. Yeah. Whereas Andromeda goes resolutely back to the Mass Effect one way of doing things and just throws together a crew of people who happen to be in that place at that time. And it's, they're a lot more yeah. believable, I think. It's the old adventurous
3: wandering into a tavern thing. Mm. Like that that's the party. It's not that any given person as a champion of any kind it's that you know have to be in the same place though i guess they've all been employed by the pathfinder initiative for yeah. various reasons
0: well i mean everyone had to have been frozen and put on an arc yeah, at some yeah. point and they'll have their own reasons for having done that
3: and it also kind of makes sense that uh, given that you know how mass effect one started and the, the crisis that was obviously facing mm. all the speeches it, that, that they would kind of keep their military hardcore people in the milky way and send off the kind yeah. of uh, youthful people with promise to to discover this new place.
0: Yeah. Also, I mean, you know, it's, it it does a great job of making the Andromeda initiative feel like a valid part of that universe, even though it's been bolted on. And, you know, the notion is that you departed (coughs) about midway through the original trilogy. So, um, like it, there's some really lovely sort of implied stuff about the initiative and how it fits into the broader Mass Effect universe that works really well and maybe explains why some people were there and, Hmm. Doesn't tread on anything that previously happened, but it doesn't ignore it to the extent of feeling detached from it either. Yeah. Uh, the example, like I think, the best example of this is it's Star Trek Voyager to the original trilogies, uh, probably Next Generation, I guess, or mm. or, or like DS Nine. Like it's you know it, it feels like it definitely takes place in the same universe, but it's very much its own thing yeah. as well. And yeah, you get those little callbacks, but not a lot of them. And that's really cool yeah the um the other side of it that maybe be correct on me after we recorded the last part is that the combat system is fucking great it's really good and it really bodes well for the multiplayer of that game i think because they've they've finally solved the problem of like how you make an open how you make that kind of third person shooter thing that worked in the sequels function as part of a much bigger environment and the answer is don't really make a third person shooter make a game that's fundamentally about jetpacks and dashes and teleports and hovering and comboing sci-fi powers and that's really cool like there's there are points later in the game where i was genuinely like excited by the combat in a way that in previous mass effect games even the ones i've adored i've always just gotten into the rhythm of like and now i snipe the headshots and then i do the yeah
2: the
0: the hacking thing and then i do the next bit and i want the next bit of story Hmm. whereas there are so many cool little abilities in this that like i just love using like backlash which is the biotic power that reflects whatever's shot at you from the front and you can do, like, a when you get the right profile that you can do, like, short-range teleports, you can sort of, like, suddenly teleport in front of a teammate and throw up this biotic shield that rebels, rebounds a sniper shot back into the head of the guy who fired it, and it's, like, feels genuinely rad. Like, I only just worked out that all of the explosive canisters are physics objects, so if you want, you can biotic push them into groups of enemies, then mm-hmm. blow them up, which is a degree of, like, systems-driven kind of physics dynamism that Mass Effect has never had. Yeah,
3: um, they made absolutely the correct decision in giving you the freedom to switch between classes and to, it's basically the Diablo 3 approach to RPG skill progression mm. where you, um, it doesn't punish you for specialising, it just lets you be whatever you want to be at the moment. Um, so the thing with the previous Mass Effects was I was always like the invisible sniper person mm. who got on a massive kind of damage bonus for headshotting out of Stealth. Yeah. Um, which is really cool way to play, but not for a hundred hours. <laughs> yeah. Whereas it feels like with Mass Effect Andromeda, you can actually, you can play that for ten hours and then yeah. do something else for ten It's hours. got
0: a really high level cap and you keep, you get basically eventually to the point where if you want to, there's no point, you run out of things to upgrade if you just stick to the same build. So you end up picking up a side thing and then mm-hmm. that encourages you to build a second build that you can switch to at any time. And I really like that system. It is a lot more like Diablo, and a bit like Diablo, actually. It's the kind of system where you probably could ignore it and just play one way through the entire game. But that's I encourage people to break out of that a little bit and experiment and see what else is in the system because it is really rewarding to mess around with that stuff and kind of see what else is possible. The other thing is that like the weapons... Like you should mess around with those augmentations when you're crafting weapons. Like it is it makes a meaningful difference. You can turn a pistol into a grenade launcher pistol. Hmm. You can like I've got a a pistol, like an alien pistol, that only fires one shot, but it's an extremely powerful single shot. But I've also given it a an augmentation called a vintage heat sink, which is a reference to the first oh, game yeah. Yeah. where the games don't need reloading. Well and so I've got this one shot pistol that I fire and then stick back in and then I switch out to something else and then it'll quietly reload itself which feels like it's, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing. And then that, that's my kind of like boss killer. Like right. when I need to switch to something to do like a really powerful single shot, that's what I, I I pull out. But the whole mechanic of stashing it to let it cool down and then run around with a submachine gun doing the rest of my damage and then pulling it out to do this like one massive shot is something that I kind of quote unquote invented because I bolted that recharge mechanic onto a gun that happens to use it in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And there's loads of interesting potential for that sort of thing in the crafting system which again it's kind of easy to ignore if you're just powering through this for the story yeah which is a reasonable way to play but nonetheless um yeah like it's it's certainly got problems it's certainly big and slow and repetitive um and there's um a lot of just a lot of stuff in the game and some of it is a bit fetch questy and some of it is good and some of it is weak and that's kind of the truth of it but overall i found myself having a genuinely good time with it just because you know after a certain point you're just in space with your space mates and mm. they're having the fun banter and it is genuinely funny i think it's probably the funniest mass effect game or it's it's the one that makes the kind of the tone of citadel which was the dlc oh, yeah. for mass effect 3 that everyone loves takes that tone and makes that a bit more consistent throughout the game rather than it being like you know that was the kind of the six form review at the end of mass effect mm. whereas this is more like that more often mm. and even actually for all the animation problems that people have of pointed out there are definitely stuff there's physical comedy in some of those cutscenes and some of those missions that you couldn't have done in a previous Mass Effect game at all Mm. like um not just when it bugs out and Ryder's head spins on the spot like in The Exorcist which does also happen sometimes (laughs) um (laughs) but like the um yeah there's some great like when you remember I think maybe this is the key thing when you remember how stiff and limited the old Mass Effect games were, in some regards, they started to break out of this. But Mass Effect One, no one could ever hold anything. So if character was passing something to someone else, it would always it'd give you be a close. Yeah, it'll <laughs> be, be under the screen. Yeah, yeah. And now they they can hold things. Mm. Like, um, there's a great moment in one of the loyalty missions, which is just two characters having an argument while the villain tries to contact them on an inter- like a hologram intercom to have to do a villain speech. Mm. And I think this might be based on if you do a particular interrupt. But while they're both arguing, both characters take it in turns to switch off the intercom as the villains kind of <laughs> um trying to shout at them. And it's just a good moment of like, you know, kind of whedon esque kind of yeah, physical, physical comedy. comedy. Yeah. But you, I couldn't imagine that happening in a previous Mass Effect game. Maybe Mass Effect three. Hmm. But most of them is just like here is the, here are my shoulders and face <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you about the history and hmm. the culture of my people.
3: I would uh I would about one egregious thing in the opening which is (laughs) the very first stream pretty much you wake up in um but obviously you know you're in a huge beautiful spaceship and you run into some difficulty and then um you know you're awake and then you turn to your right and there's the information wall (laughs) (laughs) and uh the information wall is uh an interactive television the size of a wall that will tell you what the pathfinder initiative is and (laughs) who you are and why you're there (laughs) i was like Why do you have the information wall? Everyone here is... It's one of those kind of just glaring... We have to tell the player stuff. That is just really poorly (laughs) handled.
0: But hilariously so. If you've forgotten what's going on in the 600 years you've been asleep... please consult the The exposition wall wall. (laughs) and it's just a big wall you press e on it and it tells you things
3: about the game yeah (laughs) it's really weird there's one of
0: them on the nexus which is like the new citadel okay and that makes a lot more sense in situ because it's in like an area with people milling around who are part of the initiative right and it does tell you things that are current in the world Mm. so it's like this planet has been rated viable like that kind of thing yeah and that's you can see why that might exist Mm. but yeah there's a lot of like why are you here (laughs) yeah wake you up in the what am i information wall (laughs) you are a pathfinder yeah who's that it's your dad
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it tells you your
0: father is
3: (laughs) fuck you information wall yeah um, so there are moments like that but i mean you know all games have that it
0: really it struggles at the beginning for having people go um well actually to be honest the whole game struggles as every mass effect game has for having people explain why the thing that's happening to them is important rather than demonstrate it Mm. and that stems from a few things it stems from the fact that um, you know, those games have never been good at showing rather than telling, simply because the animation started off extremely restricted, and now they're quite restricted. Yeah. So you know, a lot of the time, a character isn't going to be doing something; you can tell what they're doing while they're saying. So they will say, "Like, I'm going to do the thing now." And also, they probably won't have won't have trusted you to have read the mission description or the codex entry. Mm. So they will often reiterate why you're doing that. So it's like, I'm hacking the thing you got from the thing so that we can find the thing. Yeah, And it puts a lot of words in people's mouths that people wouldn't say. Hmm. But that's true of all media. Like, that is true of all films and all TV as well. And I think at some point, you just... Or at least I just... You just... You take it as Mass Effect style. It doesn't become a problem. It just becomes like a stylistic decision that it's a universe full of people hmm. who you meet for the first time. And your first conversation with everybody is like, here's my entire deal. Hmm. It's like, well, welcome. So, you know, my people are kind of into feelings and we're just going to talk about our feelings for a bit now if that's okay but i'm sad because my dog is missing and no one has ever opened met a stranger for the first time and opened like that but it's, it's an it's a bioware rpg like you know how this works by now yeah and it still finds ways of delivering really good story bits and genuinely funny bits mm. through that yeah i'm really forced playing it now um
3: yeah now you kind of encounter i'm in the thick of the worst of it and I'm fine with it.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm going to enjoy the rest yeah, of the game it. Yeah.
0: And it gets, it much better as well. Yeah, like so, that's the yeah. stupid thing. Um, but yeah, like I'd say, you know, I gave it obviously an 80 for PC game and fully stand by that. Like I, I think it's, you know, frequently excellent and often most of the time I had a great time and then it has some, some problems to hold it back from doing any better than that. I think if you, if you, if Mass Effect 2 was your absolute favorite game in that series, um, and you want a game with its pace and its focus on these kind of dramatic character moments that are parceled out as neatly as Mass Effect 2 parcels them out, Hmm. then I don't, maybe maybe it doesn't hit the height for you. It's, 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 it's a Mass Effect 1 nerds Mass Effect sequel. Um, but I like it. (laughs) It's got a lovely spaceship. Big fan. Pip, what have you been playing? You've been in space as well, I believe.
1: Kind of? Um, But I think we talked about that before. Cosmic Express? Yeah. Hmm. I'm fairly sure we did. I also played some Future Unfolding as well, if that's a thing that people want to talk about. Um, Future Unfolding is a game about running around in a wood, and that is pretty much all you need to know to enjoy it, Hmm. because it sort of also hinges around discovery and experimentation and things so as soon as you start getting more specific when you're talking about it it sort of you get a bit antsy about whether you're maybe spoiling some of the bits of enjoyment for people especially in the early segment because you know you'll sort of be running around and then you'll suddenly well you'll press spacebar or something to to see just what that does or what actions that trigger when you when you see something sort of moving around on the screen and then it does something, unsurpri- uh, something thoroughly surprising and then you start experimenting with it more and it opens up more of the world and you start realising how the different elements maybe interact or which bushes you can use to do different things or to access different bits of the world and so it's an awkward one to to talk about and I'm trying to tread that fine line in the review at the moment so
0: so what's the the tone of the game in terms of those those explorations like what's the kind of mood of it
1: um exploration (laughs) (laughs) like the aesthetic is um very there's a psychedelic element to it, so when you run, you leave behind a trail of your character's color. Um, and you can if you leave the screen for a little bit, if you you know if you're distracted by something, your character will sit down cross-legged and be meditating. When you come back and it'll have these strange dreamlike encounters with possibly the ghosts of animals and things and so it's a bit trippy and sometimes it tips over into whiffle Mm. and sometimes it tips back into fun like there's definitely a fine line and there's a dream like quality and when it's at its best it's delightful and surprising and doesn't need language for you to figure out what's going on you're very much just figuring out with the with the keys that you have at your disposal and that's that's enough and you can interact with this lovely landscape from your top-down perspective Mm -hmm. and that's really satisfying but like I say it sort of gets it trips up a bit and I don't know how much of that is to do with the procedural generation stuff and how much is to do with the actual curated design bits of it, so I'll need to um, see whether there's a way I can tell um, from some of their dev blogs about the intricacies on that side. But it's very... um, I don't know. It's very... uh, frustrating because you you've done as much as you maybe think that you can the next step isn't necessarily obvious the clues that you get from the ghost animals are too wiffly sometimes to be of much use or you know that there's a zone that you need to use differently but you can't tell what it is and so at that point you stop having that sense of discovery through play or discovery through accident and you start trawling and mm. then it becomes like the worst kind of metroidvania where you are going back on yourself to find out if you've missed a thing that has opened up off the back of whatever you've done or if there was a cave that you missed because you didn't traipse all the way around the outside of a clearing or something and so and and when i've found how i needed to move on from the times when that has happened I haven't really needed to retrace steps particularly, but that's what you end up doing because you're confused and you've run out of options and the game hasn't Mm. sort of teased you into the next bit in a way that feels like it fits with the rest of what it does well.
2: Mm.
3: Yeah, that's almost like the art of... Spatial level design, isn't it, to give you that intuitive sense of where to go next, and like as you say, maybe that clash between procedural and designed is is where that's falling down there.
1: Yeah, so I think because I think they've done a couple of dev blog entries about the procgen side of things, so I'm going to pick back through that and see if I can see why some things haven't been particularly clear. But I think it, I think partly it might do to do be to do with how the seeding for where the animals spawn, Mm because you can use animals in different ways as well. And I think certainly in one of the situations, I just didn't understand how to use one of those, but it was through a very specific set of interactions with bees and sheep (laughs) that I was misled (laughs) if you see what i mean
0: no but yes
1: oh yeah it's so hard talking about a game when you're trying to keep so many elements of it a surprise yeah um
0: It's like trying to talk about Mass Effect without talking about anything past the end of the tutorial.
1: Well, indeed, and that's why doing it was an error. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know. Does that actually give you any idea of what the game actually is?
0: Well, we can definitely like. So I think it helps me that I've seen it being played. Mm. I think that helps a lot. So I'll put a link. We'll put a link in the show notes to the yeah. trailer, and that'll that helps. I think. But uh, yeah, it's always worth you know
3: as a th- recommending it to people mm. check out as much as anything. Just like. Don't read about it, look at it, it's interesting and weird and play it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think I would be happy having just played the first few bits of it and then wandered away from it when I'd got to the frustrating point. Mm. Um, It's only because (laughs) I'm reviewing it that I'm sticking with it, or certainly I would have left it fallow or left it so that my brain reoriented itself naturally went back to it. And then suddenly saw the connection that I'd missed because Mm. I wasn't het up on the, the previous interactions that I'd seen and that what I thought those had taught me, Mm. I guess.
2: Mm. Mm.
0: You know, I was thinking about it. I don't think you have spoken about cosmic express on the pod.
1: I thought I talked about it a whole bunch with tom and about gdc and he'd played it before and oh
0: yeah i th- yeah i have a spatial memory and i assumed we were talking about this room
1: <laughs> um it's very good mm. if you liked a good snowman is hard to build then you will probably like this because it is about laying a train track through a gridded area which will then go past coloured blobs and deliver them to their coloured boxes where they will unpack their belongings and set up homes,
2: Aww. which mm. is
1: adorable. And that is a, a, a chunky puzzle game, and it's lovely, and Alan Hazelden designs sort of really interesting things, and the artists he is collaborating with are also good, and so it's just very cute, very lovely, experience experience which is driving me crazy in a few levels (laughs) it is the hazelden of the moment Mm. actually um when this pod goes up the his soccer bond and a good snowman is hard to build will both be on half price sale Mm. because that's like part of a launch like celebration of thing that he so he emailed me about it and was just like hello uh you know I'm not sure if you're going to write anything off the back of you know uh interviewing at GDC and stuff, um, so uh, but if you are the thing is going to be you know the other two are going to be half price from, you know, this evening. And I was like actually, um I was literally just transcribing that interview when you emailed and also the review is going up in twenty minutes, so uh cheers. <laughs> so that was just a really fortuitous bit of emailing. But I love a good snowman. It's mm. such a good game mm. and adorable. So I wonder yeah. if
0: it was hard to build. <laughs> that's not a good joke no good joke is hard to say
1: uh anyway <laughs> anyway so that was nice good mm.
0: tom you've been playing the have been playing near is it pronounced near uh that's how i have been pronouncing yeah
3: a no one's corrected me yet when i've said it over and over again alone in my bedroom <laughs> <laughs> uh near automata or automata or <laughs> Automata.
0: Yeah. If you prefer. And it's, so it's uh, either near automata <laughs> or Nia automata. Ni Nia Automata, I prefer that sounds nicer. Nia Tomata.
3: Nia Tomata is <laughs> a third person RPG. And it has combat designed by Platinum. Yay! Uh who are very good at that. Sorry. And um, Is it
1: hack and slash?
3: It is hack and slash. Mm. And shoot and laser. All <laughs> at the same time.
1: That does sound platinum y. Yes. Mm. Uh, it's
3: very fun. Um but the rest of it is a very strange kind of uh rpg set in a post-apocalyptic scenario on earth the humans have f- fled to the moon in the wake of an alien invasion
1: but the moon is evil as established by zelda yeah,
3: and like and also all in which kind of games <laughs> <laughs> uh so the humans are on the moon and they are employing androids uh, who are really fucking awesome at combat to fight machines on the surface of the planet. And machines are just kind of lo-fi life form, basically. Uh, just sort of rusted. uh Hunks of junk that are kind of moving around and, you know. Uh, so you, you're an android, killing off machines. Machines are the enemy. They're evil, apparently. And uh it's, oh, it's such a strange game. <laughs> it's really hard to describe.
1: Is it very sexy?
3: Uh, no. In fact, it's like the, it's...
1: I have seen screenshots which imply sexiness. (laughs) Oh, from the
3: design of the main android, perhaps?
1: Possibly.
3: Well, I wouldn't, there, it's very, like, deliberately perverse in certain sections. Like, uh, it it has. Um. So essentially, you discover this in the first couple of hours, but the machine uh, life that exists on Earth is starting to evolve and they're starting to try and emulate humans in basic ways. And, uh, one of the ways they try to emulate humans is trying to ha- have children and do sexy times. There's a very disturbing scene where you go into like a- an arena and there are loads of robots trying to, trying to fuck. <laughs> And they're like just performing, like trying to form fellatio on each other, and trying to form intercourse. Like, and they're just—it does
0: sound sexy, Tom. But to if it was sexy, and the answer apparently is
3: yes. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it depends on your on your um preferences, I suppose. You just uh, outlined them. <laughs> 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 uh, it's it's really a kind of grotesque moment and a sudden kind of uh, a little bit of a shock, actually.
1: Oh, okay, because I think the screenshot that I saw, and this is totally out of context, so I had no idea. Um was a, a rather booby lady with, like, long brown hair and a ponytail. But I don't know whether that was...
3: Uh, uh, no, I'm not sure who that is. Because you, you, uh, your main android, you, okay. you, you play as a pair of people. Uh, and initially you control the, um, the kind of female android. And she's kind of in a, a skirt and, like, high boots and short cut dark hair and is fucking amazing with a samurai sword. And she's got a kind of uh, she's very cold emotionalist get the job done type android and she's accompanied by um a boy who is kind of a sport class helps you out in combat and he's very kind of naive and he wants to be friends with you and that relationship evolves hmm. uh, as you'd expect uh the main so I'm trying to find a way into this game really <laughs> it's uh kind of a collage of a lot of different sorts of game so in one moment, the camera will snap to a side on view and it will be a kind of Streets of Rage beat-em-up where you go down a corridor and just kill 100 robots. Then you'll get into um, uh, a kind of craft that will jet you up into the air and then it will become a bullet hell shooter for about three minutes. And then you'll land on a surface and just engage in the third-person action boss fight. And it's that's the kind of thing it's got going for it where it's flipping between these different genres uh, all the time and underneath all of that it's a very kind of slow burn uh rpg uh with a really just hauntingly sad premise <laughs> that humans are gone and the world basically can't cope with the fact that humans aren't there anymore and what's replaced humans is this um a very sad broken facsimile of humanity hmm. that can never be happy because it so twitter <laughs> yeah it's just the, the globe is a giant egg now that <laughs> has bad opinions Shouts <laughs> them at women uh, <laughs> so, so um people uh are kind of split on the game either people I, I've, I've seen people either go down the kind of it's a seven out of ten route or it's the best thing that has ever been created and mm. it's a fucking genre shattering masterpiece. So it's a platinum game. Then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and what I would say is that it's not a 10 out of 10 best thing ever because uh, there's loads of flaws with it. Um, however, I will say it's an absolutely fascinating game, uh, with really fun combat that isn't for me, like platinum's best by a long way. In fact, I don't think the idea of the game is, is to be a, an amazing platinum game. Mm. Like it, it I, I think the combat is really fun. It's really satisfying. Um, but there's no kind of progression to it, really. Uh, you uncover new weapons and you've got a light weapon slot and a heavy weapon slot. Depending on the thing you um, put into that slot, you'll get a different move set, mm. which sounds really exciting. But frankly, by the six-hour mark, you've seen everything the combat's going to show you. And this is in a game that is designed to be replayed at least three times. Right. And it's a game that must be, like, as soon as you finish it for the first time, that's the game isn't over. It is absolutely designed to be replayed. Each, each of the times, because it switches characters, it introduces new mechanics, adds extra narrative layers, and just kind of builds and builds and builds on your initial kind of experience. Hmm. The first playthrough feels like a very kind of shallow, um, just romp through this despairing world where you beat bosses and there are bad guys and they, they, they're topless and they have silver hair, <laughs> it's just weird, like Sephiroth clones and you think this is kind of lame but i guess i'll kick the shit out of them i suppose if i have to and then but gradually like when you go through the second playthrough um the character you play a you know illuminates more about the 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 robots you're encountering and the culture and the reasons and the kind of weird spiritual uh kind of crises that have defined them and so narratively like, there's a lot kind of going on there as a, and it's a very interesting way of um, building a game where um for example one of the boss fights is um, I won't get into it too much, but um, you get to see that boss fight from many different angles mm. uh, as you play through with different characters, and you, uh, each of those angles adds an element to that boss's personality and what their motivations are. And it's a fucking fantastic boss fight. The sound design is extraordinary, and the music is amazing. Like it's the best thing about the game is the music and the sound design. Um, there, you can um, even through the in the first playthrough, you can you hack things. And as you hack things, the music you're listening to uh, phases into a chiptune version of the music dynamically as you're getting close to hacking the thing. And then when you actually enter it, you dive into the thing's mind and you play a little kind of asteroids game where you're a little pip rotating and shooting things in a, uh, in a kind of 2D environment. You play as Pip. <laughs> and uh, the music is seamlessly phased into a, a, a beautiful chip tune rendition of the music and then as you explode out of that six seconds later the music seamlessly goes back into the original score which is amazing uh, the whole effect is just absolutely astonishing and Nia has these moments of just being transcendently brilliant and and that's what I would say. I, I, it feels like something like Hellraiser to me, where Hellraiser is a film with a lot of kind of shoddiness to it in a kind of surface way, but has these transcendent moments where uh, a man will reanimate by pulling himself out of the floor and reassembling his flesh. Something that, you know, goes way beyond the confines of that film and just becomes a thing that you just have to see, no matter if you if you like films, you want to see that. Mm. Uh, and, and Nier is like that for me, where it has these moments where if you if you're into games and into the way games fuck with games and talk about themselves the Nier is something you should absolutely definitely play, um, however it does definitely have its flaws, so as a bullet hell shooter it's not a very good bullet hell shooter, when it goes into its 2D fighter mode it's not a good 2D fighter, <laughs> and uh it does all these inventive things but isn't like successful at many of them, mm. and I would say that only half the b- bosses are any good and the other half of the bosses are fucking tedious actually, because uh, they involve shooting mm. loads and loads of enemies coming in from off screen in a kind of really knock-off-bullet-hell manner. And the environments are really kind of... Uh, they incredibly atmospheric, but it feels like it's a PS3 game in terms of the geometry and a lot of the way that the... You know how you'll see like a load of vines and there'll be massive gaps in them and you think oh i could just go through that gap yeah but no actually those are massive objects that you know the blocking around those objects is is not accurate Mm. your model compared to it's stuff that basically you'd expect from an open world game from a decade ago right um That and that's what it feels like Uh, having said that it's incredibly atmospheric the lighting is amazing which is why it it feels to me like a hd remaster in that way where you take it like an old game with old geometry and then put an amazing lighting model on it and suddenly it looks kind of good Mm. it's like that um and at the same, also, there's nothing dynamic about the open world uh there are just kind of robots milling around you can kill, and as you run around, there are little glowing loot moats that you click on, and they give you scrap for the the shitty crafting system all the all the progression systems are boring <laughs> there's no kind of uh the r p g elements are just just dull and uninteresting really just irrelevant to what you're doing because basically. The 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 fairly simple combat system that Platinum have designed is the game. Hmm. It's not about upgrading your gear really. You don't really have to. Because the the dodge uh that you've got a dodge move, where if you press it at the right time you get like a super dodge, which looks amazing. But the window for that is fucking just enormous and you can spam the dodge button and always counter everything so is that kind of lack of it's not a fighting game yeah it's and not um revengeance or it's something not anything like that no it's it's and and kind of nor should it be it shouldn't be a punishing combat game because it's such a big rpg it's basically just a really fun way of giving you friction as you move through the world and mm. it looks and feels spectacular when you're being shit out of loads of robots which is kind of all it has to do and that's fine but it's only fine. <laughs> yeah. So when people are going like, oh, it's 10 out of 10, it's fucking amazing. I'd, I'd, I'd say, no, it's not that level. But I would say that if you love games, you've played those games, then it's, it's definitely, definitely worth checking out.
0: How long is each of those playthroughs on average?
3: Uh, so for me, the first one was about 20 hours. But once oh, wow. you've done that, um, when you go through it the second time, it's much, much, much faster. Um, especially because the character you play in the second uh, run through... Is just incredibly fast. Like they just <laughs> run really fucking fast, which is a probably a really good intentional piece of design because they mm. know that you know the all the the areas and that you know you want to get through it fast. Uh, and then uh, I've not reached the third through yet, but I get that's very different again. Uh, so yeah, it's it's fascinating, really really interesting game. And then I might report back on it. It's again, it's one of those things where the more I play it, the more I can't talk about the stuff it does. Yeah. Uh, but it's very good at being self-referential. It's funny.
0: It sounds like we're we're all in that position this week. <laughs> yeah. Even though I'm happy to be unshackled on what I can say about Mass Effect, I'm also conscious that the game is coming out this week, mm. and I don't want to be like, "Oh, this mission, gotta gotta, gotta find out what happens in this mission," because yeah. it's such a spoilable experience. So maybe they're mm. all games to to return to. Yes. I kind of wonder actually whether Mass Effect might be might be worth a spoiler pod, possibly.
3: I'll be up for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, finish, I'll definitely, I'll finish
0: it. Yeah. yeah. Be in a little while because it's a it's your big old game, mm. and I don't advocate anyone play sixty-five <laughs> hours of it in six days. That's not <laughs> how you feel good about your life. No, but nonetheless,
1: I think I'd want it on console if I did play as well. Mm, I've played all of the other ones on console, yeah. and mm. that's where I actually play big long games. Now I just don't care to do it on PC. I find it uncomfy.
0: Mm. Yeah, I I, get that increasingly as well. Mm. I've done um, several playthroughs of each Mass Effect game on console and several on PC, because I'm a lunatic. Actually, no, that's not true. I haven't played Mass Effect 3 on console, because I shifted over. So Mm. that is a small degree of sanity. But yeah. I Tiny. Yeah. Well, that would be one thing maybe to to say is that, you know, if you are dipping into Mass Effect this week, take it slowly. (laughs) It's okay to play a couple of hours at a time and... Mm just explore the surface of each alien world at your own pace and
3: stay off the internet and stay <laughs> off the internet. Don't read the comments threads. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. And I think, um, hopefully the things will, will, will die down a bit. How, um, because I was going to say mass effect is, is quite a spoilable game. I think cause they always are in terms of best bits and so on. Yeah. How spoilable is, is near.
3: Um, I- it's full of surprises basically it's full of little surprises that i would hesitate to ruin Mm. like um
1: it sounds like it's closer to future unfolding in that respect mm. like i even though the the surprises are so tiny they make up such a big amount of the appeal of the game that to give away one even feels like Mm. a sad thing
3: i mean i've only i've only talked about stuff that you'll get within the first two hours of the game um But there's a lot more to it. And I think the, the plot is kind of, uh, you know, if you lay it out there, it's stupid. Uh, It's (laughs) stupid. The humans are on the moon. Uh, but actually, um, uh, the sense of kind of sadness it generates, like that, both the aesthetic of the world in combination with the kind of themes that are introduced and the the dialogue obviously isn't, isn't good or anything. Like, but the, there is something that Near does collectively to make you feel a certain way, and give it to it shapes a certain sort of despair mm. <laughs> that, that is uh, that, that impressed me. That it, it's very impressive that it, it could do that.
0: Well, that's what I always feel. How I always feel about the role of writing in games generally is to an express is to express a mood or to or to create an effect, which is not an attempt at a mass effect one. It's just kind of it's all about the the feeling of being in that place and have some agency within that. Yeah. Not writing for its own sake. Obviously there is good writing in journal entries and logs in games and things like that, but I think it's not a straightforward discipline when it comes to games. Everything operates within the within the context of the game in which it takes place and how the player works with that. And so what makes good writing in that context is actually very variable. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um
3: you you can't look at it in the same way you'd look at a script for anything else because it's just it doesn't matter whether a human would say it and actually that's even a stupid argument about films like Sorkin dramas no one talks like no well the you you know stylistic
0: inflection the example I would use and this is I think very pertinent to Andromeda is um, Joss Whedon shows no one no one talks like that right like Joss Whedon show people love them but they're shows full of the happiest friendliest you know funniest people you know and that's just how that you know operates and i think games are you know like any other form of media similar they have they, they adopt a style in order to create an effect and the the question is is that effect um accomplished not is this writing realistic or is it naturalistic or whatever else the mm. judgment might be it's the collective like more. So, i think you're
3: when you're in a game when you're in a game world you're at the mercy of the collective aesthetic efforts of that game mm. like um between the writing uh voice acting the music the lighting uh it's all it's all so much more collectively powerful in a, in a game when you're existing in that world and moving through it than it would be in a in any other medium mm. so you know um, there could be like weird sentences in near automata or just um most of the characters have just totally banal things to say as npcs but nonetheless collectively with the music and with the lighting and with the atmosphere and having to spend time in that world for 10 hours like how you actually feel is what matters it's not about any
0: of those individual components perfect example of that is dark souls Mm. um which doesn't have like good writing or good voice acting like the voice acting in dark souls is really weird i I love it though yeah it's it's so
3: it's so nothing else sounds like
0: exactly that's the point right Yes, yes You know, if you met the Onion Knight for the first time, and it was like, you know, a fucking Olivier performance, <laughs> a sad man sat in front of a big gate, it would be a very different game yeah. than getting just a weird looking bloke going,
2: hmm, hmm,
0: hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the whole game is created from that, you know, specific, even discordant, you know, yeah. mashup of things, like you say. Hmm. So... I don't know, I don't know how I land that point really, but no, not really. It's just it, interesting. Yeah. To, the, I, I always find the, I always find, and it's been very pertinent this week, but I always find the question of what is good writing harder to get my head around than you'd think. Yeah. I,
3: I think, um, what I've taken from Mass Effect is it's almost like a great soundtrack where, um, it's supposed to be just kind of uh a lot of the time it just exists in a frictionless way and for you to glide through it yeah and then when it goes wrong that's when it really twangs and kind of pulls you out of it Mm. so those duff lines are just like (laughs) uh and like a you know a a piece of music that's just too much for the moment it's like ah
0: you know yeah and there's there are some things that i think genuinely don't hugely work like this for some reason uh there's a lot more british actors in andromeda Mm. and they deliberately use accents in a particular way to indicate something right I think it's a bad idea. (laughs) Um, and I don't know whether that's just something to do with the, the directing or the, the the choice of casting, or maybe it's something personal to me that I hear British voices in fiction differently to how I hear American voices or Canadian voices, Mm. but something there's, there's a lot of deadpan British acting in, in Andromeda for a chunk of time. It's not going to take over the entire game, but there's a surprising amount of it. And something about that just didn't work for me. (laughs) Like, um, for aliens, I should say, some just some, some British aliens, <laughs> right? And um, and for some reason, it really didn't work for me, mm. and it, it's because it was sort of discordant in the wrong way. Like I started to notice that that was a sort of deadpan British person with a weird face mm. giving me a mission, and something about it felt like it didn't quite cohere with, as you say, the kind of the dialogue as background track mm. to this sort of adventure that just sort of revolves around you. And that's, I think, something that's got to be really carefully negotiated and maybe something that hasn't been carefully enough negotiated Andromeda. But nonetheless, like, I think you're right. Like, it's only a, like, not every line of dialogue has to be fucking the snappiest line of dialogue ever. It just has to fit with the previous one. And that's, I think, yeah. when it gets it right, it gets it really right. And when it gets it wrong, it's so noticeable. Yeah. And at the moments where you really want the snappiest,
3: most exciting exchanges have to be the, the crucial the really emotive moments that... You know, yeah, yeah. Mass
0: Effect is always nailed. And that's the important thing. All the companions are great. Mm. So, I that's what matters, really. Even Liam? No, poor fucking Liam. <laughs> oh, man. Liam's loyalty mission, I'll say this, is probably the best. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Now oh, no, 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 I've got no to be friends that. with him. Hmm. Yeah. So, I will say this. Liam is a very believably drawn character. Mm. Uh, so i I believed I believed him in him as a character, I just thought he was an asshole no mm-hmm. no, no no, no, not an asshole. I just thought he's a he's a bit of a lemon asshole's too strong mm. he's just come on, liam, like he's trying slightly too hard for your approval through the entire game, which is a perfectly legitimate character motivation, but you do a lot of eye rolling right, and that's and, you know, that's a reasonable thing to do. I yeah. think it? it's just unfortunate that once again the first male companion in a Bioware game. Mm. Is, is is that guy uh, again, and there are maybe some other issues as well, but yeah.
2: yeah I'd love mm. a
0: I'd love an eye roll interrupt in Mass Effect Games. Yeah, yeah. You basically do get that at some point, so it's just like, for oh, heaven's sake. Um anyway. Shall we do questions from Questions? Should we say Walloping howdy. And to, questions to questions from questions.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, I love that phrase. I'm so sorry I forgot to say at the start of this episode. There's no right. going back and changing that now. I mean, I could just say walloping howdy now and someone could cut that into the beginning of the episode, but they shouldn't. Well, it depends how much time I have now yet. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. We do have several questions. We do. We do. I don't know why I bother to point that out. We always do. 20 minute break. That's all it takes for things to go weird. <laughs> Dear crate. And dad jokes, writes Henry. With modern games' visuals getting closer to reality, the biggest area for technological improvement, in my opinion, remains AI and its processing of natural language. The notion of talking to the monsters may be a cliché, but I think a game's immersion could be greatly improved if it offered more than press X to talk and a handful of pre-recorded NPC responses. This, of course, is not the designer's fault, but the current limitations of AI, speech recognition and synthesis. But I wonder how great an immersive sim could be if, for example, to get past an NPC guard, I wouldn't have to kill the guy but could use my PC's microphone to flirt, yell, or befriend him with a casual conversation about soccer, finally getting him to leave for the kitchen to make me a sandwich, talking through puzzles, Alex Murphy style. However, this perfect chat bot would introduce new problems. If the in-game AI can talk about a soccer match, this match would have to have happened within the game world. If you can talk about everything, everything has to exist or be procedurally generated, since the perfectly simulated character could not act convincingly in an imperfectly simulated world. Am I wrong? What do you think about far future games processing (coughs) spoken language? I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks and keep casting those lovely pods. Henry. I think I think he's bang on about this being like a proper... When someone figures this out, that will be a bigger shift in what games can be than Hmm. anything this side of perfect VR, really. It'll probably be the least of our worries
3: at the same time. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Because AIs will just be able to phone you up and
0: talk you into things. Probably already can probably already can that's not very convincing at the moment no um so i think one answer th- to this one way of getting around because i think he's he's right to indicate the problem of your game world then needs to be f- fully realized has to be able to cope with conversations about a billion different things mm. one solution to that is set your games in the real world and use actual data because collective any, database yeah. that exists between games that actually
3: addresses modern
0: yeah but if you had speech. like if your game was a, a spy thriller Mm. set in whatever at this point you know 2025 los angeles or something as it will then be by the time any of this works (laughs) then you can use data from public sources to fuel all that stuff you can have a character not know anything about football and not have anything to say about it Mm. but if you ask them about a football match that actually happened last week it's not out of the question that that data would be out there and that solves the problem for designers Mm. obviously that limits you a little bit but you can tell a, a lot of stories within the real world you can tell a superhero story in the real world and still pull from real data, you know? Yeah, that would be fascinating. I, I think probably the biggest barrier is people
3: not being willing to share that technology. And that's yeah. uh, if everyone develops bespoke chat AIs, it feels like that's never going to, like some will be good and some won't be good. But it feels like to, in order to have, as you rightly point out, access to the amount of data, knowledge that yeah, the AI would have to have access to, surely it would have to be a collective effort. Some mm. sort of
0: cloud of knowledge that
3: these things are able to draw. I mean, from. it's
0: kind of what those big AI efforts that Google are doing is kind of in yeah. pursuit of, right? Mm. Like, so like, it's Siri and it needs to be just accessible, at open source, and sort of an AI that you can plug into different things. Yeah.
1: It depends what you want it to do because you might be able to get the effects that the person who emailed is talking about without actually approximating an entire consciousness. Mm. Like you could, you know, if if you're talking about how to get round a guard by using your voice, you could train it to recognize tone, you could train it to recognize certain sort of um, signifiers or cues, whereas you don't need to get it to know all of human knowledge mm. that could possibly come up. And similarly, you also need it to then plug those points of recognition into behaviors so it isn't just about simulating a conversation it's about simulating the results of the conversation and so at what point would the AI be trained to think that it had you know that it then wanted to go off and do something else to then leave the way clear for you or you know there's there's a lot in there that would Need you to figure out how the AI or how the chat would then tap into all of the other aspects of the game. And also, if you wanted to let people bring everything in from outside, you know, outside the game world, like if you wanted to, you know, reference a football match or whatever, then, you know, you end up with the problem of, well, does that break immersion? Does it not? You know, how do you as a writer, for example, where do you even fit in at that point if the conversation can branch in all of those different ways? So I think that there's um, there are advantages to being able to keep better track of what's going on and to, to rein in some of the options. Um, and there was also just something about... I mean some of the data that you'd maybe be referencing would be things that are known but other things would be disputed and so where would you bring that as your source you know where would you what what's the ai tapping into you know what what have you done have you created a consciousness that has evolved and that has you know developed a specific sense of what it believes is true and what it believes is false and we'll use that as a solid knowledge base. Or have you just essentially birthed a thing that is unable to distinguish between data meaningfully, but can still respond?
0: It's interesting. Like that is, I think that would be the, I think what would we would now think of as writing would become narrative design. And narrative design would be basically um, establishing what different AIs do and don't know. How they treat certain information that would, and that would be the art of creating things that people can converse with in addition to creating attitudes and personalities and stuff. It's interesting. It's a, you know, it's a properly different form of storytelling, but I think those, I don't think those, those issues are obstacles to the idea so much as they're like ways in which the discipline of working and creating those games would become. Um, and if there's
3: ever a conflict in the AI, they could just say, I don't care about that. Yeah, <laughs> then they make you ask
0: another question. <laughs> indeed, yeah. Um, the um, the question of like, like tone is interesting because I think if you made an AI that recognised tone, but and went on tone if it didn't understand the words, then you've basically invented dogs.
1: Well, you certainly wouldn't be able to use irony, but then the internet doesn't really. No, indeed. Allow for that anyway. <laughs> so. I don't know I I think that it's an interesting question but I think that it's tied to so many different aspects of how you create games that it it wouldn't just be a case of you've got everything the same but you have a character that can then have a meaningful conversation with you and you just slot in conversation module into in place of a particular bit of programming you know
0: Mm. well I think um one thing it would have a really interesting impact on is concepts of genre because like the genre of your story is a, you know, it is a conceit that people in genre fiction don't know they're in genre fiction. And if you were in a zombie apocalypse, but you could ask the AI how this rated compared to other zombie apocalypses that you're aware of, Hmm. then, you know, it needs to be able to handle potentially fourth wall breaking information and the only way to really meaningfully do that is to not have a fourth wall. Cause you either say, you either have like, like the, the West world style content block where the AI just can't hear certain things, or you have to have it so that like when someone says, you know, if you, you have, to have a story that's not going to break, if someone talks about the type of story that they're in, hmm. which is an interesting problem to have. And then again, that tends towards more real life settings and, and more fluid kind of genre conventions, more like situations, that kind of thing. Mm. Interesting.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, for me, just talking to my computer is still like this because I will be considered an old man for this in 50 years time, but <laughs> just talking out, out loud into a microphone by myself in a room. You, <laughs> you at, feel like at, a, a lemon. Exactly. Uh, and I, I'm not sure I would be able to get past that even if I was conversing with a semi competent ai
0: yeah i'd I'd like i'd be okay with typing yeah like typing into a reactive chat box
3: i'm okay with i remember
0: um playing starship
3: titanic which was like a douglas adams uh adventure game where it, it's ra- entirely ran on typed chat speech every mm-hmm. every npc you interacted with you typed at and it was a fucking nightmare <laughs> because it didn't know what the fuck you were saying ever. Uh, but even a slightly more advanced version of that, like if that had been a, a track for the last 15, 20 years, um, that could be like an amazing yeah, thing. There are games that do now. stuff like that. Yeah.
0: Often, they're often about that, though. Like it's not usually incorporated as a feature in another
3: no, bigger game. No, it's not but still. a go-to thing. But it feels like, again, one of those development dead ends that could easily be picked up in the modern context and, and evolved. People
1: do interesting things with language inputs in interactive fiction. Mm. Um, But obviously that's different again, so that's not about AI, but just if whoever it was who emailed in was interested in how you use language for interactions, IF is a useful point.
0: Mm. Richard writes, why are there no good Robin Hood games?
1: Because people are awful.
0: Mm, but specifically in this context
1: well because if you give somebody a game and say okay you steal from the rich and you give to the poor as is the generally held and probably erroneous thought on Robin Hood um, then they're gonna steal from the rich and then I don't know build themselves a house made entirely for keeping their collection of sticks and cheese wheels Mm. just because people
0: you know asking the player to meaningfully give up rewards which is the key of
3: to
1: robin yeah, hood
0: you'd have to replace it with you'd have to get a loads of
3: experience for doing it but at so that point you know it's just a different type of gold right yeah so yeah. it'd just be a different type
0: of incentive yeah or you get fucking morality points that gets you the good ending isn't the <laughs> exactly. point of being robin hood really it gets you the best sword
1: mm. isn't like darby trying to claim ownership of Nottingham? uh no, robin hood as well or something
2: are they is it? Is it?
1: Well no, I thought hang on, no, not maybe not Derby. There was 'cause obviously Nottingham, but you know, that wasn't wasn't one of the other Midlands cities trying to to stake a claim to Robin Hood Airport and stuff like that. And I was not aware. I thought that there was. Maybe I'm maligning the Midlands. Mm. For some reason.
0: More broadly, I mean, I suppose there's mileage in just games that are about having a lot of mates and being good at shooting an arrow,
2: mm. right? I
1: don't
0: know how many of them there are.
1: Well, I don't know. Are there?
0: <laughs> that was the nature of the question. Um,
1: I, suppose oh, I thought you said there are.
0: I mean, there's plenty of games that have good bows in them. God knows, we have have been through several years of the year of the bow. Um, kind of. Well, no. In the, there's been loads. There's all the Far Cry games. They've got good bows. There's loads of.
1: Yeah, but good according to what? Good in the way that they actually feel like a bow, or good yeah. in the way that video games?
0: They f- well, they feel like a video game bow in okay. the way that everything feels like a video game gun. <laughs> there's lots of good video game bows. Oh yeah, but yes, yeah, you know, so you got to go beyond that to make a Robin need Hood. Need bows and bros, isn't it? Yeah, it's bows and bros. Mm-hmm. The bows and bros, John. <laughs> bros before bows, as Robin Hood was fond of saying. God. <laughs>
1: They could make a Ma- made Marion game, and I'd be pleased, but mm. based entirely on the BBC kids show mm. with Tony Robinson as the sheriff. That.
2: Good. Mm.
1: Yeah, yep, that
2: yep.
0: Good. Mitchell writes this week's Torment Tides of Numenera question. <laughs> Three weeks running. Good game. Well, keep going, <laughs> dear Crep and Crobat, Greetings from the Great White North. I've yet. I have yet another question about Torment Tides of Numenera. I'm really interested in the game and have heard that it's a good spiritual successor to Planescape Torment. I was wondering if you think it would be worth going back and playing the original Planescape or if Tides is a good enough substitute for the experience. I'm familiar with the Numenera setting and I've always had trouble going back to really old games and cutting through the jank of controls and interface. On the other hand, the writing in Planescape seems just that much more bonkers that it would be worth it. Should I just play both? Thanks for the great pod. Mitchell from Toronto. Uh, do Numenera first, and then think about it. Think about it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like Numenera's is tame. It's just it's no. not quite as out there as I don't know. There are things about it that are more out there. I, I mean, think I'll so. Think. I think they're
3: equally out there. But I think that if you're <laughs> if you don't want to interact with janky and control systems and really old school kind of conventions about saving and stuff, then uh, stay away no from the original Planescape until yeah. you've done. Numenera. I think
0: I think Titan Numenera is as you know ambitious in terms of ideas. It's just not as visually weird mm. most of the time. Yes. Although it's quite weird. Yes. So it's like, you're not like mates with a talking skull and you don't look like fucking Butch Frankenstein in leather, but that's more due to maturing visual sensibilities than to do with its ideas. really. Yeah, definitely. It's not like an extended section that's just a kitchen sink drama, you know, it's yeah. all bananas space things. So yeah, it's, it's equally like they, I'd say there's a huge amount of imagination in both yeah for sure um, let's play the new one first yeah I mean you will spend a lot of time having meaningful philosophical discussions in the inside of a big anus yeah. and that's you know isn't that what gaming's ready <laughs> for <laughs> exactly we talk a lot about how why we, can't we talk to the anus exactly <laughs> you can why isn't
3: there
0: an AI that is you basically have to find the right way to communicate with the anus. <laughs> best game, you have, game of give, the year. you have to give the anus what it wants <laughs> look it's a sci-fi thing you wouldn't it's a transdimensional dimensional anus there's, there's no getting around that um <laughs> daniel writes hey crabs and crawdats reading in the news today that esports are predicted to generate one billion pounds of revenue by 2020 with audience numbers passing 600 million Is this the move of gaming into the mainstream public consciousness? Or do you feel that these numbers, when stacked against other sports figures, are a storm and a teacup? And his numbers come from a BBC article that I believe came out today. What is the pod's view of established football teams trying to muscle in on LOL's popularity? Is this encouraging and likely to bring a broader audience to gaming? Or will we see problems inherent in big money sports making their way into esports also? Are those problems already here, i.e. performance enhancing drug use, game fixing, exploitation of fans, hooliganism? Great podding. Keep it up, Daniel. So, I mean, it's worth saying that performance-enhancing, drug use, uh, game-fixing are both historically issues in esports as in anywhere else, mm-hmm. um, independent of those organizations completely. It's not like something that would be introduced. In fact, it may even help when somewhere like Schalke or another football team decides to implement their own structures. The old wellness policy. Yeah.
3: Mm.
0: As for the the first part of that, though, I don't know if you agree, Pip, but I don't think this marks the arrival of esports into the mainstream because I think it's too generational for that.
1: Well, the question wasn't <coughs> about esports in the mainstream, was it? it's about being gaming into the public consciousness. That's true, it? yeah. yeah said, mm. And I think gaming is already in the public consciousness, but esports seems to be a particular odd sticking point because over the last certainly three, four, five years, there has been you know certainly in my general orbit there's usually one person on the press trip who is writing a what is esports article for a mainstream publication mm. and they you know they just come out every now and again and it's they never really seem to be any closer to actually you know, getting any further than that question yeah. um, a lot of the time. The BBC did better with their coverage of the quarterfinals for uh, 2015 Worlds, mm. which was in London, and I think they won an award for it as well, which was cool. Um, but that involved taking the the starting position that this exists and is valid and and not having the the kerfuffle Mm. anywhere near as much about just sort of but what is who are is it and i think uh, but going on to the part about football clubs and things i'm assuming they're referring to paris saint-germain and the fact that they have yellow star who is a famous league of legends player used to be at fanatic and Think at t s m very briefly at the very end of his professional playing career um but uh i I skim read the article like I haven't had a chance to actually sit down with it, but I think Paris saint Germain were like talking about getting people to engage with their brand, and this being another way of doing it, and it's like well. In that case, it that's interesting to me because PSG are thinking of themselves as a brand that isn't tied to football mm. and perhaps is broader and it falls under the remit of anything that ha- can have sport appended onto it. And they're, you know, dabbling in league because, you know, I, I think companies aren't immune to buzz marketing and, and you know, it's worth taking a punt on something if you've got money and the, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to get into tennis, that's a very different, very established thing in terms of having a sport hierarchy and things like that. Whereas because esports is still young, is still, you know, forming itself, especially with league of legends, which is only sort of on its sixth, you know, Mm. cycle of pro stuff. Is it six? Yeah.
2: Something like that, yeah.
1: Um, then, you know, that's a, a, a more sensible place perhaps to take upon because you could perhaps shape it or you could get in on the ground floor if it's going to be something, but easily you could also get out if it, mm. if it isn't. But, I mean, on the brand side of things, there's also the fact that, you know, when I was a lot younger, I used to follow Manchester United and, you know, they had... Mutv, which was obviously a subscription TV channel and they had their monthly like glossy magazine and they had their merch and they had you know like they had any number of things that were also bringing in profit. so it's not you know this is perhaps also just a logical extension of sports applying their logo to a thing and then selling it selling mm. tickets to it selling something to it and that Maybe they perceive gaming as being not going to cannibalize their other audience as well mm. or to sort of be as big of a risk. Manchester, um, yeah.
3: Man U is a really good example because they're already, I mean, they're one of Manchester's two main clubs. Um, and football used to be this local concern, but Manchester United, like, they sell huge amounts of shirts in India. They mm. they are an international brand, you know. Well, their it,
1: biggest player base isn't Manchester. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> is it like Turkey or something, or at it, least it maybe yeah, used to be.
3: They're everywhere. Like, I mean, the 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 reach of that Manchester brand with Manchester in the name is is just outstripped the original scope of the club by such a degree that maybe that brand could also just host an international uh, esports team quite happily and bring that in as part of its overall brand offering if you like
1: something that's interesting is the other teams the other um, football teams that i've seen trying to get involved with esports have kind of been doing it through fifa Mm. so it's interesting that they've gone well we'll stick with football but we'll you know we'll um we'll go that way rather than okay well you know we might as well just pick the biggest Esport, if you see what I mean. Mm. Although then again, maybe that's because it's people like Manchester City and they're based in the UK. And the UK it doesn't have a particular League of Legends strongholding, whereas it does have very much a, a, a FIFA and a console presence. So, you mm. know, again it's different. And maybe in Scandinavia you'd have a, a sports team going after a counter-strike global offensive mm. thing or yeah, so I don't know. I don't. I don't necessarily know that that has answered any of the question, but I think that sports teams have really interesting relationships with whether they are about the sport or whether they're about the brand, and how much is about the lineup of their players and mm. how much is about specific personalities or a or a way of playing. Like, you know, um, Arsenal are or. I don't know if they still are at the moment because it's been a while, but they were very much defined by an actual sort of um, not aesthetic, but like there was definitely a way they played football. Style,
2: well sure, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And so, like an ethos, yeah. And similarly, Wimbledon back when they were Wimbledon, mm. <laughs> like they, you know, these are the their identity and what that actually means and how much is tied to the brand and how much is tied to the fans and how much is tied to the players. Mm is and how much it's tied to the physical place as well wow. is very interesting and slippery and means different things to different clubs as well
3: i think it's quite forward thinking for large clubs with an international following to mm. get away from their own sport and to say actually this like the the Manchester United name is associated with international quality like, like, the team, there's just loads of players from all over the world. They're the best ones they could buy basically and that will apply to every aspect whether it's a League of Legends team or a CSGO team. Does not really matter what the sport is? Like, That feels like a, a very forward thinking way for a, a sports organisation to, yeah. to be looking at their future. It'll
1: be interesting to see how they, how if, for example, if Paris Saint-Germain has a League of Legends team that it fields and it does well whether that Having come from a different background in dealing with professional leagues and dealing with international leagues and stuff, whether that will affect how, I mean, with League of Legends, it's so dominated by what Riot do. Mm. not third parties particularly and so it'll be interesting to see whether that changes that relationship whether mm. you know just the presence of other expertise and other ways of doing things sort of existing on the periphery and people asking questions like but why are we doing it this way or that ruling is bonkers or mm. you know things like that I'm interested to see what that could bring yeah that's fascinating actually
3: because I mean it sounds to me as a are actually very Incredibly controlling presence in that mm-hmm. game, in the way that maybe Valve aren't necessarily the yeah, same definitely. way with Dota. Definitely. So, uh, and take football as an example. Like f- football's rules have changed in innumerable ways over the years, and the way the game is played has changed over the century um to extraordinary degree. And like it feels as though the game should have the freedom to evolve in that way without a controlling presence saying this is what it needs to be for our business needs specifically.
1: But then again, mm. maybe, you know, FIFA or maybe the, um, the other football governing bodies, the more regional ones or the local ones or the national ones, um, maybe they have similar, you know, uh, maybe, maybe Paris Saint-Germain would actually be well-placed to actually understand that, Mm. you know, um, controlling element or that kind of, well, these are the rules and you have to adhere by them and here's the transfer deadline period and, you know, all of that stuff. Maybe that's just, it's logical and it's an infrastructure that they know and are super comfy with because Mm. it has modelled itself on traditional sports. So why would traditional sports not find it peculiarly comforting? In a way that perhaps other sports that have developed slightly differently over the years wouldn't. Mm.
3: It's really fascinating. Like the culture says it's so different from sport to sport. Um, so, I mean, football has had, a, uh, or soccer has had the advantage of being a singular agreed upon rule set that has evolved over the years. Whereas, you know, boxing has um, shattered into many different belts. Uh, according to many different corporate interests and that Mm. has created its own problems with you know it's been very difficult it's incredibly hard to follow that's what i enjoy boxing and then something like ufc has come along and kind of codified a lot of you know open free fighting rules into this one set that everyone now agrees upon that could still evolve so it's i mean it's very interesting to watch how which ones die and which ones survive and i think the ones that tend to survive in the long run are the ones that are agreed upon but can evolve openly Mm. according to input from many different
1: i think that with to go back to this article like i said i've only really skim read it but i've read so many articles over the years that say well here are future predictions for this that and the other and just as many saying it's a bubble it'll burst in like the next six months or you know like it all it'll take (coughs) is this particular thing to happen and the house of cards will tumble into the bin and you know all of that kind of stuff and so You know, you can read those things and it's interesting in that it tells you about the, perhaps the data that is governing people's current decisions, but I don't think it necessarily tells you about the future, particularly. Mm. It just tells you where people are drawing information to back up the investment choices that they've made or, you know, what particular people with particular agendas want to no, you know because you know if you were if you were investing in something you would maybe want to know the the profit prediction in a best case scenario and a worst case scenario you know and mm. then you know one of them is useful for a news article and one of them is you know headline worthy and another is perhaps what you'd you know use to sell something to a shareholder or you know and another one is what a company who creates that data set wants to put out there with their name next to it you know there's there's just so much that is involved in why particular statistics exist and who created them and why they've got out the way they have so i don't, i don't know i haven't picked apart the article and i could probably ramble on about it for a very long time but mm.
0: next question is about cats sure not a fan of cats but continue. Okay. Kane writes, Dear Caracals and Clouded Leopards, ever since Peter Molyneux invented the dog, puppers have been celebrated characters in many of our games, from Pokemon-like Growlithe, surely a very good boy, to that one villainous Shiba Inu who is the true antagonist in Silent Hill 2. But kitties have, in my opinion, gotten woefully short shrift. What are your favourite cats in games, and which disgraced game designer needs to pioneer them for them to be the, for them to rise to the level of prominence already enjoyed by dogs regards cane. So, um, I would actually argue.
1: Meowth uh, also exists. Sorry. Meowth.
0: Meowth. Yeah. I guess the question is who cares? I do. Okay. <laughs> no, that was, that was joking. The, as a dog person. Um, I mean, I think the, the reason for this more broadly is that dogs do things in real life. Dogs have jobs.
1: Well, dogs will follow you around and fetch things for you. Exactly. Cats will just stare at you and then show you their bum and then wander off.
0: <laughs> exactly. Mm. And that is an experience you can get by playing any multiplayer game with humans, but doesn't tend to be reflected in actually putting cats in games.
1: I like cats. I'm a cat person. Mm. 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 I don't know. There's stuff like cat lateral damage and like a bunch of other bits and pieces which are fond... And have that peculiarly sweet way of looking at the dickishness of cats, Mm. which I think you kind of need if you're going to be a cat person. You have to sort of believe that somewhere in that little spiteful furball (laughs) is something that you can at least laugh at, you know? Mm -hmm. It's got to at least amuse you, even if you're fully aware that maybe the love is not there.
3: <laughs> I, I think that's why th- the thing with cats, like the bare minimum is so low. Yeah. You know, it's just... We set a low whereas, bar for cats. Yeah. Whereas for a dog, you know, they just love you automatically pretty much. And then... Where's you know. the challenge? <laughs> well, probably shouldn't be a challenge. <laughs> <No. laughs>
0: love is just inherently nice. <laughs> um, I was going to say, actually, though, like, in a way, the, the twist to this is that Peter Molyneux did invent the cat. Because if you go back, because he invented the dog for Fable 2. But if you go back far enough, you get to Black and White. And Black and White was fundamentally a game about (laughs) trying to corral a creature that didn't want to do anything you had to say and just wanted to run off, poo, eat things and kill things you didn't want it to kill. Hmm. Which is, even though those creatures were like monkeys and cows and cats and dogs and lions, they're all basically cats. Like if if you had a dog in black and white, it would be fine. It would be easy. Mm. But you don't. You have a cat, which is why it leaves dead villages at your door all the time, and and you know, and why it shits in a big grain store like cats obviously do. I don't. I've never had a cat. I'm very allergic to cats, which is worth pointing mm. out. So this is based on only anecdotal experience of being extremely ill near a cat. But nonetheless, it's a telltale so sign.
1: Some lovely cats real little personalities Mm. and like sometimes that is a euphemism for twat (laughs) but you know in a kind of in a a nice and endearing way you know there was the one that was crabby and old and his bum hurt because of his arthritis but he would you know no, to curl up next to me if I'd had a bad day and things like that and we'd just nap together and there was the stupid one who we had to take to the vet once because he was sneezing and rubbing his his nose and Aww. the vet pulled an entire chive out of there and it was like <laughs> oh for god's sake and he also ate a frozen cheese scone that was That was fine.
3: (laughs) Was it just like a cat that was just like had a big cheese scone shaped kind of (laughs) lump in the middle of him? (laughs) It was frozen and solid. did he he an idiot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you leave something out on a plate to defrost, cat's going to eat it cat mm. is gonna eat it as, as
3: dogs in that respect huh? except yeah. dogs can't climb which is a big... <laughs> that's true we it's also an had advantage. a really
1: fluffy cat who uh would lick butter just really loved butter which who doesn't i think lick butter, though, I mean... well i think it's because my mother subscribed to that old wives tale of if you move to a new house to get the cat settled in you butter its paws And then by the time the cat has finished licking the butter off its paws, it's happy with its surroundings, like it's got used to it, it's acclimatized. And so I came home from school, having just moved house once, and my mother was just in the garden buttering the cat. (laughs) (laughs) This is Pip Origins, isn't (laughs) it? Sure. But also I think that's where it got its taste for butter. (laughs) So, you know... And there was the, the black cat that used to sit under the car and then would get covered in oil because there was a, a leak and then it would just come inside. But we didn't know that it was the cat because the cat was black and the oil was black and mm. it was, oh! but you know, they, but they were kind of entertaining mm. and they were very much their own little personalities and. Sometimes some cats aren't, I've found. Like, some are a bit bland and you never get on with them exactly, or mm. you never quite find that knob. But then I find that with dogs as well. Like, some of them are kind of.
0: I think it's just that even a bland uh... dog probably just loves you, regardless.
1: Yeah, but isn't that really annoying? Isn't that like having a colleague who won't go away?
0: Yeah, but it's a fluffy colleague that you can pet.
1: But, I mean, still, isn't there something a bit, like, disdainful about no, how much nothing... it wants to hang out with you? No, I
3: mean, a third party hasn't hired them to sit next to you, I and mean, it's a bit different to the colleague thing. Like, you're in it for the relation- the mutual relationship.
1: Well, unless, like, a partner got the dog.
3: That's true. And you
1: were not into it at the yeah, time. And true. the dog wants to be your friend, and you really aren't that bothered. That's so a specific
0: keep, like... rom-com setup, though, Pip. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. So and basically, what asking we're, it to do things on the other end of the house.
0: What we're getting at is that the reason there aren't really many cats in games is that cats are fundamentally like a kind of chaos element. Mm. Where games tend not to do that because games tend to be about the player. Mm. And cats' lives are very much not about you.
1: I would quite like it if games had little touches like in Skyrim perhaps you could get a cat. And if you had a shit cat then you would go away and you'd come home to your house to put more of your belongings in there and you'd find that all of your stuff had been scratched and all of your things had been knocked over and there was you know fur on your pillow so you'd have to like clean the sheets and you know just i'd i'd quite like the option for a pet to really do one over on your house (laughs) because you know like just Mm. just as a kind of here's a bit of personality here's a sign that that something other than you is having an effect on your world and you've chosen to invite it in and i think pets are actually a really good
2: Mm.
1: opportunity to do that and to as a kind of an easy shorthand for making your world feel lived in Mm. i mean Animal Crossing did it with if you'd been away for a while, you'd go into your house, you'd move some furniture and like cockroaches would Mm. run around from underneath it and you'd be able to stomp them and see their little cockroach ghosts.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think many pets would survive players if Mm. they fucked up your house.
1: (laughs) No, but you know, like there would be a kind of maybe a rehoming thing or, you know, like it was just essentially if you found a stray and thought you'd take it in for a while or something Mm. and, you know, maybe if you had quite a docile one, that would be, you know, you'd have a pretty but slightly dim cat that would Mm. just sort of sit on your things and do a bit of sleeping. But then you'd also have the sort of streetwise tomcats that would have found a way out and taken all of your things with them and sold them, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like cats do cat burger ah see quite <laughs> very good
1: cat crimes
0: quinn writes dear creighton crowbar the definition of a cooperative game has been the subject of some hot debate on the cnc discord recently one camp of which i'm a part says that co-op game is a game in which multiple people play versus the ai it Gives the example of diablo rayman origins the lego games etc the other maintains that any game in which you play on the same side as other people counts as co-op, which would expand the term to include games like Dota, Overwatch, Battlefield and pretty much every other multiplayer game in existence. I feel this bloats the term and renders it pretty much useless for describing what a game entails. What are your thoughts? Fast for reading, everybody. Quinn. So we had a, a, an awkward moment uh, while discussing the question where I went obviously it's a co-op game versus the AI and if you said anything else, that's That's bollocks, but that's not quite the case, is it?
1: Well, I mean, I disagreed with that. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) But um, yes, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not bollocks, but um, I think all I was meaning was I get that... I think when people say, oh, it's co-op, to me that genuinely does just mean I'm playing on a team with another person. Mm. It doesn't tell me enough about anything else you know because it doesn't tell me the flavor of the thing it doesn't tell me the the type of gaming that we'll be doing it doesn't tell me you know it it, it doesn't really give me enough useful information that i feel like it's a meaningful term particularly in its own way anyway
0: Mm. see i would say that i would say that like and maybe this just comes from having internalized a lot of game language in that particular way. Like, the comparison I would make would be role-playing game, whereas if you say role-playing game, I don't take that literally to be a role-playing experience. I mean, that's probably got levelling up in it, right? Because that's kind of the way that term has been warped. Co-op.
1: If you were playing Mario Party, both Mm -hmm. of you, if you were playing Mario Party and you were doing it 2v2 instead of, like, 1v1v1v1,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: would you... Build that experience as co-op or no. would you like what would you but what would you say that was because... team okay yeah, team
0: competitive okay. team competitive like so t- like so this is the thing right like i don't see so a co-op game say let's talk about um borderlands i don't know any game where you're on a team of players going off to do a thing left for dead right, right. left for dead isn't a team game it's a co-op game danger right. is a co-op game it's a team game um and that's just weird internalized language like i i i But
1: isn't that because team is the more useful term at that point so team games they are still you know they they are still about cooperating they are still a cooperative experience at their best or they are intended to be but it's that team is the more useful permutation there it's mm. the more useful like phrasing of that experience yeah but they are still that they could still feasibly be termed co-op i
0: think so all of this fits into the banner of multiplayer right like if you go back to this basic sort of terminology like it's like what in what form are these multiple players interacting with each other and teams implies competition whereas co-op implies for me it implies entirely cooperating for me it implies that every player in the game is cooperating and that's where I get the versus AI thing from. Um, I totally agree that there is a cooperative element to playing on a team, but in terms of how games are described, I don't think I've ever, I wouldn't, I would, I would, like, if I was editing a piece of writing and someone described a competitive game as a co-op game, I would edit it. And that's just, I mean, and that is exactly how these things get perpetuated, right? It's people like me mm. making that impulse choice, but well, nonetheless. I
1: think again, competitive is the more useful way of talking about it. And so I guess.
0: I, th- I
3: think for me the the presence of other people and the presence of that confrontational aspect is more of a defining element than the mm. fact that you might happen to be cooperating with people within that context. So it's almost like it's the dominant descriptor mm. of that uh, of that you know, interaction with other people. Um, whereas co-op is almost below that. So there is no competitive element with other humans, then.
1: Co-op so I think, comes, I think I think the the wiggle room for me comes in because. I would agree with that and I think obviously I, d- I don't think I would describe Dota or anything as a co-op game I-, I would describe that as a team game I would say it was competitive you know all of that kind of stuff Um, but I do think that for me co-op implies a particular state of mind that isn't like you were saying, isn't particularly antagonistic, adversarial, whatever. And I think that the problem, or not problem, but for me, that that creates a bit of confusion maybe, a bit of wiggle room, a bit of ambiguity because some things that I think other people would deem competitive or put in that team-based adversarial mode, to me, just don't feel like that because it's stuff like, so for example, with mario party because the stakes are so low and because it's fun Hmm. like i would still say that that felt co-op to me because even Mm. though it's against human beings it's still you know it's not like you're actively trying to screw someone over it's just mario party really
0: mario party is the the friendship breaker (laughs) it's the altar on which relationships are sundered
1: so we're not just having fun in mario Mario Party, party
0: No, <laughs> okay. it's, the, it's the destroyer well, of good times.
1: But also the Archon mode in, um, Starcraft. in Starcraft. And that felt that um, that to me was so ridiculously pantomime horsey and silly that that felt that didn't feel adversarial. Mm. But that's because my skill at it was so low that it just felt like a, a mess and daft, you know. Mm. And so, it, it again, it lost that competitive bite and so that part of the descriptor didn't feel useful but Mm. co-op did because it sums up the mindset Mm. more helpfully for me
2: i can totally
0: see where you're coming from i think there's a there's a a line here between um trying to accurately uh elucidate the experience of playing a game in which you can use the word cooperative useful usefully and trying to tell people what features a game has, at which point I think it becomes confusing mm. to use co-op in that context.
1: Interestingly, mm. I would exclusively use co-op for board games in the sense of you play together against whatever the the designer yeah. has done. Yeah. I, I would never use team based. So and you would say that like
0: it. code names was a team was a co-op game. No,
1: that's team based. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, so what I mean? but it's because I think I'm not trying to express a mindset or a or a very particular feeling in the mm. same way. Um mm. and like I say I wouldn't I probably wouldn't use those personal like definitions in my writing because I I think that there is a very specific established vocabulary that um, that I don't get to just change on a whim and not have the wrath of the comment section rain <laughs> down upon me. Yeah.
0: And also simply when you're doing the, the sort of, you know, informing the consumers element of games media, like, you know, I, Mass Effect again, right? If, if I say to someone quickly, it's got a cooperative multiplayer mode, mm. I, I can, tr- I can say that and trust that people get that what I mean is that it has, and I can go into more detail and say it's, you know, if I say it's got a wave based cooperative survival, mode mm. um then you know that ways of ai are going to come in and fight you and your friends and that's a sort of quick way of saying it would
1: like, you say that if you were playing for example pen and paper rpg stuff do you say that that's co-op the the people who are playing rather than the people dming
0: yeah definitely. i'd say it was co-op but actually i wouldn't necessarily use the word co-op to describe pen and paper role-playing hmm. like i think pen and paper role-playing is a very specific setup because it's yeah. not adversarial. I mean, people
1: would know what that was yeah. anyway. That would be the yeah, like, default to. Because but...
0: it's it's like you know, f- so for example, like, um, for me, like pure co op. And this is interesting because this is when you get into the the slight splitting of hairs. But like for me, co op um involves players entire like every player involved is working together, and that's the that's the promise of the experience. Yeah. Um, as soon as you have a GM or another player that sits aside in order to facilitate other players having a cooperative experience, it becomes a um, a different thing that's neither competitive nor cooperative, but is sort of like a dungeon mastered multiplayer experience where there's a sort of slight adversarial element. Um, like asymmetrical thing, whatever form of it is. I think it's, it's
3: ultimately to the betterment of everyone's experience, like, uh, at the end of the day, whereas competitive is purely people trying to destroy each other for fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, that, that is such a different, well-defined.
0: But this is, I but I think the board games comparison is interesting simply because this is where we get into the, the, complicated side of what it is and isn't the reason that for example so um like three of us have all been playing silver tower which is definitely a cooperative board game Hmm. because it's entirely cooperative all the players are equals in the system um the new version of that game has a gm and therefore it moves slightly outside of that but then a good example of this is um, imperial assault which is fantasy fights like star wars equivalent like dungeon crawl board game Hmm. um which has a competitive rule set and a cooperative rule set But the competitive, the, the cooperative scenarios still have a player who controls the Imperials and is the bad guys. And they're functionally using the competitive rule set. And one of that game's interesting flaws is you need, really for everyone to have fun, you need an Imperial player who is willing to use the cooperative, sorry, the competitive rule set. As a GM would. right? Because if they start competing, which they are fully supported within the rules to do, Mm -hmm. the experience gets worse for everybody because it becomes four people versus one person who has a lot more power than they do and has the power to withhold information and shit and dick them over. Right. And so it creates an awkward tension purely within that game's kind of narrative scenario play Mm -hmm. where suddenly the word co-op doesn't feel like it fits quite as well. Because it's 4v1 semi-competitive multiplayer storytelling. You know what I mean? It becomes yeah. confusing. Which is why I always prefer to use co-op to describe purely us versus the machine yeah.
2: experience. I hmm. think
1: it's also interesting because, or not interesting particularly in in the direct sense, but in a kind of broader conversation way is I think um, there's something to be said about where the... Ed- the serial stuff creeps in with regard to games whether that's in this discussion about co-op and what is and isn't co-op and also just in broader games terminology like the ongoing discussion about um for example uh, it's a general split i think but obviously there's a lot of sloshing um, between continents but i think in the us it's generally more acceptable to say you beat the game and in the uk it's more i finished it yeah and so that speaks to a sort of a baseline assumption of adversity against the designers Mm. or against the the game itself that perhaps is uh, also then messes with a shared definition of co-op because if that sense of adversity still hasn't gone away, if you're cooperating to beat a thing, mm. then, you know, that,
2: yeah, then that starts to muddy
1: the waters yeah. as well. I don't think we've helped. Uh, we've, no, I, I, not help. I think it's a broadly useful <laughs> But artificial. I mean, in terms of settling of the debate on I the... Mean, I mean, I would ultimately come down very hard escort. on the
0: outside of co-op means versus AI in terms of having a discussion about games that everyone's going to understand like if you know to go back to the point like if a writer did that i would want the article to address the notion that dota has a cooperative element explicitly to avoid confusion because i even though yeah you can point to people in the comments and say you know be more you know pay more attention to the language that's being used you're ignoring some nuance here at the same time terminology starts just to mean what it means in communities in in like Localized language communities, which is what we've got. Yeah. So there's a point where you have to accept that this word just means this thing in this context. And it's easier to use it and not confuse people. <laughs> but, yeah. Um yeah, and
3: I just to b- slightly broaden the co op thing, I'd like sitting with someone on the couch and playing until dawn, that is also just an amazing co op thing. If even if mm-hmm. someone doesn't have direct input into the game, Is
0: is one of the best things
1: maybe people don't think dota is cooperative because they're fucking bad at cooperating on a team
0: well i mean to be fair dota is fundamentally for the vast majority of people who play it
1: it's a single player game
0: it's a single player game it is also a game that gives you enemies in abstract and enemies on and definite team. enemies and the definite enemies are on your team mm. the abstract enemies are the guys over there right but most people in dota kind of admire their enemies their enemies have the support that's buying wards. Their enemy has the carrier that's getting farmed. Their enemy mid laner is the dang- most dangerous person on the map. And it is your fucking fault for not telling us when they go missing. The real villains are your own teammates. And that's, uh, at that point, it becomes harder to say that solo Dota is necessarily like a co-op experience with strangers. So much as it is a fight with strangers to overcome impossible adversity. <laughs> uh That is localized only within your own collective incompetence. Best game I've made. Best game I've made. Um, we can wrap up this week's question section with another entry into the Book of Grudges, Pip. Yay! Unfold the mighty tome.
1: Oh, I wish I had an actual like scroll that I could rustle and and you know start scribbling on.
0: The Book of Grudges, though, Pip. The yeah. scroll. No, indeed. A scroll of spite.
1: Well, I could put the scroll in the book.
0: Good God. <laughs> You've revolutionized the written word.
1: I know. <laughs> it's just a load of scrolls stapled together, really, isn't it? That's books. That's publishing. You got to do You the worked in that. magazines. Yeah. You know how is. it is. That is Both what Both of you. <laughs>
3: yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Take it leave it.
0: Ian contributes to the Book of Grudges the following. Dear... I'm going to cough. Sorry. (coughs) Very good. Dear Walloping Crate and Howdy Crowbar. Nice. Nice. I wish you to add my gripe to your big book of grudges.
1: Can do.
0: Careful now, Pip. You haven't heard it yet. It took place in GTA San Andreas in the heady days of 2005 and my first year at university. If I could add another grudge, it would be that this brings home how old I now am.
1: You can have a footnote for your grudge.
0: And that, yes, and I, you can share in that because apparently I'm exactly the same age as Ian. Hmm. Seeking some respite from a hangover and lectures, I stayed in my room for about two days, doing little but playing the game and eating crisps. I advanced quickly, turning my protagonist from a lanky kid, inexplicably willing to murder people at the behest of assholes in Los Santos, to a ripped man willing to murder other people at the behest of different assholes in San Fierro. These were the GTA days where saving the game was tricky, and the developers would insist on you replaying content, which included watching their hilarious attempts at wannabe movie making if you failed. Most of the time, GTA missions are at least short, but occasionally they string together long sequences that require half an hour plus of talking, driving, and shooting before completion. I will not, unlike the developers, bore you with the details of the mission, but picture the ending... My character, on a last drop of health, staggering back on foot to a save point mere meters away. I had escaped my pursuers, my car blown up in the process, and victory was in sight. Then, out of nowhere, literally, I never saw him coming until the hateful moment, a guy in a prop plane dropped out of the sky directly onto my head, (laughs) killing me instantly. (laughs) I had no beef with this man. (laughs)
1: You're a very forgiving person. (laughs) I had
0: no beef with this man. I had no beef with this man. Uh, He was not one of my pursuers. He was just a random happenstance of an open world where things tend to catch fire and blow up. My my initial reaction was sheer incredulity. But this quickly turned to rage, sufficient that a house of 13 other freshers felt compelled to knock on my door and ask about my well-being. (laughs) I have died thousands of times in games. I remember almost none of them, but I remember this one. Now you can too. Regards, Ian.
1: Yeah, that's in. Yeah. That's definitely in. That's that- an entirely reasonable grudge to GTA hold. GTA
0: save system yep. goes in the book. She see GTA.
1: Also, the thought. the prop uh, the prop plane guy. Yeah. I mean, it's not
0: uh, his fault, though, is it? <laughs> I suppose it is. Hmm. <laughs> that's how we discuss things.
1: Yes. <laughs> so, yes, feel feel aggrieved, but also know that your grievances have been heard Indeed. and entered in. And the through.
0: book shuts for another week. It's a revenge mm-hmm. of sorts. Indeed.
1: <laughs>
0: that is all the questions and grudges and pod that we've got time for.
2: Hooray.
1: I mean, you know, like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> hooray as in. Congratulations, everybody. who's got everyone. to the end of a journey.
0: Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> not, thank God. Although you may well be thinking that. <laughs> if you'd like to send us a question or grudge for a future episode you can do so by emailing us at questions at CreightonCrowbar.com or tweeting us at creighton crowbar you can hang out and discuss the semantics of the word co-op with our community in our discord community which is to be found well you can find an invite link on the website in the top navigation bar creighton crowbar is kindly supported by our Patreon backers who allow us to do this podcast and spin off things like the mini- miniatures podcast, which we'll be returning next week and some other spin off things that we're definitely working on, but got sleepy. <laughs> Sorry. You also get to enjoy Pip's knees more often. Oh,
2: God. Anyway. You
0: don't. No, funding the Patreon will not make Pip sneeze. No. But if it did, it would sound like that.
1: It's because the the Book of Grudges got dusty because I didn't use it for a day or two. (laughs) A day
0: or two? (laughs) Hours.
1: Minutes. (laughs) Had to get a spare one down. Mm. (laughs) Yes, well. Mm. Also, um, if you want to come and see us at Res, you can go buy tickets on the EGX website. There
0: will be a link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Do come see us next week. Ask us questions live. Marvel at Graham.
1: Are you guys gonna be around on the other days?
0: I will first? be there throughout the Friday and possibly a bit of the Saturday, depending on before. how things pan out.
1: I'm presenting something on stage on the Thursday, doing the Craig and the Crowbar thing on the Friday, and then just generally milling on the Saturday. Cause As Craig obvious. David
0: once said, "We <laughs> milled on Saturday."
1: Yeah. Mm. Weird. anyway southampton's top 30 under 30 he was
0: you say that every time i mention craig david <laughs> it's
1: my one craig <laughs> david fact
0: <laughs> and it's weird that that keeps happening well, um
1: stop talking about craig david i
0: can't it's a recognized medical condition <laughs> and anyway you can follow us on twitter if you must I'm at C Thurston, that's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Pip is?
1: I'm at Philippa War, which is at P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A-W-A-R.
3: Tom? PCD Ludo. l u
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: I've done that so many times now, it just, just comes out of me. Yeah, yeah. But you said like a
0: question then. L-U-D-O? <laughs> <laughs> <L-E-D-O? laughs>
2: is it? It is. It is. Anyway, bye. <laughs> Thank Thanks for listening, everybody.